You are listening to Genuine Chit Chat. This show is for real. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, I'm joined by author Sahaj Sharda. So in some detail, myself and Sahaj talk about education. So the reason he wrote this book is tackling some of the issues raised due to the elitism around a lot of universities or in America, the colleges. So Sahaj is a very educated individual. He's been through the education system and is continuing to go through it. And in amidst that, he decided to write a book tackling all these issues and wants to talk about some of the things that have caused these issues, as well as what one could actually do to resolve them. And in this conversation as well, we talk about those things, as well as monopolies and duopolies that many institutions have, both inside and outside of public education and healthcare and things. We also talk about how Sahaj wrote his book and why he actually did it the burden of debt, Sahaj's thoughts for the future, and those sorts of things. So this is a great conversation for anyone interested in politics, education, alternatives to the mainstream, or really just trying to educate yourself on if there's anything you can do to help with some of this institutionalized elitism and what we can do about it going forward. But that's going to be enough for me, my friends. There is going to be a quick promo for the Cryptid Cocktail Party, which is part of the Podmoth Network by our friend Janine Mercer. So a link to their podcast is in the show notes. And then I'll be back at the end of this conversation to give you more information on what's to come from Genuine Chit Chat and all those sorts of things. Just make sure you check out those show notes. But that's enough for me, my friends. So I give you my conversation with Sahaj Sharda. Hey, everyone. Dave here to tell you about my show, Cryptic Cocktail Party. Looking for a good time filled with laughter, intriguing tales, and a splash of the supernatural? Well, maybe I can help. Every week, I bring on a rotating cast of guests to have a few drinks, share a few laughs, and take a dive into the unknown. Join us as we raise our glasses and tell the tales of some of the world's most famous cryptids, from the legendary Grafton monster to the elusive Dover demon and the enigmatic Mothman. But that's not all. Our party spills over into the world of the extraterrestrial, encounter the spine-chilling Flatwoods monster, the mischievous Hopkinsville goblin, and uncover the truth about infamous alien encounters. You need a dash of mystery? We got you covered. Delve into mind-blowing conspiracy theories such as the infamous Philadelphia experiment and the secrets hidden within the Denver airport. Cryptic Cocktail Party is a weekly comedy podcast that guarantees laughter, curiosity, and a few surprises along the way. Cheers to the unknown. Welcome to Genuine Chit Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. And I'm your host, Mike Burton. I am here today with Sahaj Sharda, who is an author and is someone who's very passionate about something that is incredibly important. And I've been listening to a lot of other podcasts that he slash you have been doing. And I think it's such an important discussion to have. And it's not only something that's an issue in America either. It's something that is widespread um, across a lot of the Western world. And we're finding over here in the UK with our universities, it's a similar thing. So we'll kind of jump off with, obviously, you're an author of the book College Cartel. And it's, well, I'll let you explain it. So with this book, College Cartel, just as a jumping off point, what's that? And then we'll delve into the minutia of it. Yeah, so the main thesis of the book is that in the United States in particular, the elite colleges, the top 20 ranked schools, the top 30 ranked schools, essentially collude in all sorts of ways that hurt the public. And so, you know, a lot of these stories have been covered um, by the press. So the press will talk about how much lobbying the elite colleges will do, or maybe they'll talk about, you know, some of these loan programs and the debt problem. But a lot of these things also aren't covered by the press. And so what I really get into in the book is if we were to apply like an anti-monopoly, antitrust frame to this problem, what are some of the conclusions we'd come to? 
And what I say in the book is essentially the elite colleges have formed this sort of implicit cartel that squeezes students by creating a scarcity in the market. So it's a lot like OPEC um, or a lot of these, you know, other paradigmatic examples of cartels, which sort of squeeze supply in order to juice price. And that's exactly what the elite colleges are doing. And so this book is really um, trying to push that message and then also trying to imagine what a world looks like where we try and break that cartel up and and how that will explode opportunities for middle and working class people in America. Amazing. So jumping off that, you obviously have, you find a value in education and you are an educated individual yourself as well. So I wonder if you could just explain a little bit of how you value education and what what some of the issues are that are being caused by this problem. Yeah. So, you know, I'll take a step back and, and maybe talk a little bit about my family background here. Um, you know, three three generations ago, or I guess two generations ago, my grandfather grew up in India. Um, he used to study by like candlelight. And, and these are stories that I sort of grew up with um, because he lived on a farm where there was very little electrification. Um, and, you know, to the extent that education was accessible, you really had to fight for it. And he went on to get a bachelor's degree. He went to college. He went on and got a master's. He even went on and got a PhD. And so that was sort of like the foundational story in my household of, of social mobility, which is education is meant to be the silver bullet, this thing that allows for social mobility, the, the one way that you can uplift yourself. Um, and, you know, that's always been my view of education, that this is what it's supposed to be, the silver bullet, the thing that really uplifts people. And what's been quite disappointing for me is as I've gotten older, as I've interacted more uh, with the American higher education system, it seems to me we've, we've almost inverted that mission. Um, instead of being a silver bullet for too many, um, it's golden shackles. And I think what we need to do is think very deeply about what the real mission is and whether or not our most elite educational institutions are really meeting that mission. Mm, that's a very good way of putting it. And one thing you said in one of the other podcasts that I really like, and I, I would like you to delve into a little bit more, is that education and degrees are not the same thing. If anything, you've actually described them as an antonym. So I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the things that I really liked doing when I was researching this book was reading about some of these like famous autodidacts or self-taught people throughout American history and, and also just global history. So um, you know, one of our most famous examples is this guy named Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he went to the back of a barn, borrowed some books. He was deeply in debt. Um, but when, when he came out of that barn, he was, you know, one of one of these like sort of great lawyers, um, completely self-taught. Um, and, he, and he'd sort of practiced himself uh, into being great. Um, and, you know, there, when you when you really think about it, this is like sort of like a very common theme in America and other very socially mobile places. So you can think about some of our founding fathers, people like Benjamin Franklin, um, who, you know, sort of taught themselves all these different things that became polymaths. Um, you can think of, you know, in the ancient world, people like Demosthenes who would go in the cave and, and fill their mouth with rocks so that they could get rid of their stutter. And, and this was all done, um, you know, sort of in a very self-directed, self-motivated way, which was completely dissimilar from, you know, the traditional credentialing system um, that has emerged as this sort of dominant modality of education. Um, in, in the UK, you know, you have these famous people like Faraday, um, who wasn't particularly educated at all. And yet, uh, he unlocked the secrets of electromagnetism. And so you have all these famous examples, people like Da Vinci. I mean, it, you, the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, one of the questions I ask in the book is in this, in this world that we live in now, where we've had this internet revolution, this information revolution, where we have now today things like ChatGPT, 
where there's more information available on YouTube, on Wikipedia, on the internet, um, through these chatbots than ever before. Why aren't we seeing more Michael Faraday's or more Abraham Lincoln's or more Da Vinci's? Why are more and more clever people not choosing to carve their own path and, and take their own route to education? Why aren't they trying to teach themselves when there's so much that's accessible to them? And, you know, the answer I sort of arrive at in the book is because, you know, the college degree isn't about the elite college degree isn't about education anymore. Um, it's about credentialism. It's about signaling. It's an information good. It signals that you're better or worse than someone else um, to an employer. And, you know, I think that was a really big insight for me in this book, because when you really understand what the function of the degree is today, um, then, then you can sort of be quite realistic and cold about what the problems are and what the solutions need to be. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons that this education system hasn't really been tackled aggressively um, and fixed for such a long time where the problems have been festering for so long is because we take this romantic notion of what the universities are doing and it's just no longer true. Um, they're not, you know, at the vanguard of education. They're not doing so much in tinkering around what the best, um, you know, methods of teaching, uh, or best pedagogies are. What they're doing today is essentially, um, you know, creating these signals, creating these ways to market yourself by excluding you or separating you from others. Um, and I think once we understand that, um, it becomes much more clear what we need to be doing. Mm. Very good points made there. It's it's one of those as well because I personally I over here obviously college and university in in the uh, the US it's college over here it's university our college is like your high school so just to alleviate any potential confusion because I've got a, a cross pollination of listeners in both uh, places but I didn't go to university uh, my fiance did and lots of her friends did as well but we found that there are certain jobs it's a necessity you know some of the more high paying jobs or more specialist uh, jobs and things you know doctor is the main one that springs to mind immediately in educators and things my fiance is a teacher and so one thing that i kind of when i finished college and i had that kind of path i was like i could either go to university and get higher qualification or i could do something else i end up doing something else i did an appren apprenticeship um worked at a place for a year or so and got a qualification that way but what i was finding is a lot of the time an education at a university is perceived more as like a badge it's kind of just like a tick box it's almost just on like a job application you just tick a box or not and there's not really that much more to it in a lot of ways and i can't remember the stat exactly but it was i remember hearing that the majority in the uk the majority of jobs that require a degree do not require a specialist degree they just need a general degree so it's also this as you say it's like a barrier to entry it's basically just here's loads of hurdles in the way to to just kind of stop you a little bit and put you off in a way but if you get over those things and over here we have an issue with uh, debt as well i know it's not quite the same as in the us but it is it's increased especially a few years ago my generation was the first generation of going to university where all the fees tripled uh, which is all good fun but it put me off quite a lot so I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more when it comes to in America as well with the education system and the weight of the financial burden that you get from going to um, the US and in what ways that's damaging as well. Yeah, you know, I think um, so. So let me start with the first point you made about sort of your own path. And, and thank you for sharing that, because, you know, I think this is this is sort of the, you know, the common narrative we get. In the United States, essentially, it's education or bus. And by education specifically, they mean this very narrowly defined set of institutions. Um, and so you have to go and get a degree or there are no other options. And, 
you know, one of the things I, I don't really delve into enough in the book, but I hope to start a conversation around is these alternative paths that other countries have sort of continued to develop. So in places like the UK and Germany, you have more of these like vocational type training programs, you have apprenticeships, you have all these other possible paths to education. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that the United States is severely weakened and something, you know, for a very long time, people have been talking about, but there hasn't been this big push to make it happen. So thank you, first of all, for for highlighting that. Um, on your second point about barriers to entry, I think this is precisely right. And, and fundamentally, this is the function of, of the elite education system, which is to create hurdles and keep some people in and some people out. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is if you if you if you just study like American presidents, there's a lot you can learn about like how the education system has has sort of shifted. So earlier we talked about Lincoln. Um, now I'm going to bring up an anecdote about Lyndon Johnson. So he's one of he's one of these like really great presidents because he's completely self made, right? I mean, he grew up in Texas Hill Country in in deep deep poverty. Um, you know, couldn't went to college to this this place called Texas Southwest Teachers College. Um, you know, sort of like a small school in, in, in Texas and couldn't even pay his tuition. At that point, it was like in the hundreds of dollars and, and he just couldn't afford it. And so he had to take some time off. He went and became a teacher for a year. He taught some kids and then he came back and, and paid his tuition and went on to graduate and, and uh, then went on to get really involved in politics versus an aide and, and then moved up the, the ladder from there. But now compare that to today where you know, it's almost seen as as uh, a disqualification if if you've gone to one of these community college programs or one of these small college programs that are not well resourced, not well funded, um, and you want to enter into public service or politics. And and it's exactly to your point about this barriers to entry mentality, which is you know we've we've sort of um, the, the there's been this like sort of sociological thing where the the same types of people from the same types of backgrounds have gotten the same types of credentials and and they they become then the hiring class and in order to um sort of evaluate themselves favorably they're not going to go out of their way and demean their the, their own degree things that they think give them value and so in all these ways you have these sort of like stacked barriers to entry where the past generation is locking in standards um that aren't relevant to the job you know a lot of the jobs that you're referring to where you know, you just need a general degree. The fact that it's just a general degree, I think, sort of uh, explains the point, which is like there are no actual skills that are prerequisite for the job. It's just a way to filter people out, who they want and who they don't. And I think this is something that's been quite, um, quite bad, both in the United States, but also in Western countries generally, which is this sort of proliferation of degrees, this degree inflation, degrees that have nothing to do with the job that you're actually doing, skills that have nothing to do with the job you're actually doing, but that you still have to shell out a ton of money, take out in the United States at least a ton of debt in order to pay for. And it's a very zero-sum status game. It's not something that's positive sum as education should be. Um, and so to me, you know, this is one of the deepest problems that's facing the United States, and it's, it, it's entirely a problem of our own making. Um, if you turn the money off, if you turned the amount of free credit into the system off or reformed how it was allocated or did more on the supply side where you were controlling prices or regulating things um, in terms of just the sheer amount of waste that's coming out of the system, there's so many 
low-hanging opportunities to reform and fix the system that we're just not taking. And in the United States, you know, the, the debt burden is well over hundreds of billions of dollars into the trillions of dollars at this point. Um, it is it is really dangerous the path we're on. And you know, um, I think we're gonna have a reckoning. And it's it's for me, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book is to focus on look, this is not just a problem for you know those people over there. This is also something that's true at the elite universities. Um, where the the basic bargain is completely out of whack. You know what you're paying for is not what you're actually getting. And you know by making that very concrete and clear, I'm hoping that that we can start to really jumpstart this this debate again about how we solve these problems. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, this is essentially the function. It's sort of this barrier mentality um, that's that's meant to exclude, not uplift. Mm. Yeah, very. I completely agree. It's, it's one of those things as well. And I think politics is very similar. I know you touched upon that earlier. And it's these two frameworks that are the controlling factors of how society progresses. And in my opinion, healthcare, education, um, are, you know, the financial stuff as well, but healthcare, education and politics, they're the three like key things of how a society functions. And in my opinion, obviously, I'm in England, so we have the National Healthcare Service. But I'm like, all the money of the government really should go into education and healthcare to make sure all your citizens are, you know, well educated and can handle themselves in life, but also are not sick. And then once you've got those two sorted out, whatever money's left over, that should be sorted out for pointless wars and, you know, the other wasted money that both our respective governments like to spend money on. And I know that's quite a, a liberal thing, but the issue I have with it as well is with politics, especially. The political systems, both in the US and the UK and in many places in the world, need to be changed, just like the education systems do. But the issue is, is that the people who are in power of changing those things are the ones who are benefiting the most from the disequilibrium that's caused by their outdated laws. So the people in power who are making all this money and etc. in it, they're not wanting to change anything because they're the ones benefiting. And so it's up to almost everyone below to kind of be like, right, we have to vote in this kind of way, or we have to try and use our money in that kind of way, or don't go for these kind of colleges and things. So obviously you wrote this book to try and combat a degree of this. And I think that in uh, when COVID and lockdown, etc. happened, that really turned a lot of people's heads because I know people in the US and the UK were both being like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm in lockdown, I'm at home, I'm not even getting a one-to-one -one kind of experience and I'm paying the same amount. Where is this money? Where's this value? So I've just thrown a lot of things at you. So back at you. <laughs> just have you noticed a turn in heads? Because I think you are slightly younger than I am, but I think you were in education sort of, I know you're currently studying law as well. You were in education around the time of the lockdowns and things. So I wondered if, I know I've just said a lot of things at you, so you can yeah. respond to any and all of them, but I'd uh, put that to you as someone with first-hand experience. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this politics point, which is that, you know, we have very dysfunctional politics around a, a lot of these really core social issues, education, healthcare, um, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think that's exactly right. And so, um, you know, the question is, okay, well, what is driving these dis this very dysfunctional politics? And, you know, unfortunately for me, one of the most um, disappointing things to see has been how in bed the Democratic Party, the left, traditionally the left in the United States, is with the elite colleges and universities. Um, where it's almost there's this sort of like state private fusion 
um, in the United States were at the highest levels of power. Um, you know, the Senate Majority Leader's Office, um, in the House with senior leaders. Um, the college presidents at these schools can get a meeting like this. I mean, they just walk right in. In Washington, they have so much weight that they can throw around. And the question for me has always been, you know, what's gone wrong with the Democratic Party that, you know, that they're taking these stances that are so against working and middle class people? I mean, this is traditionally and certainly in the way they frame themselves, this is meant to be the party of working and middle class people. It's meant to be the party of making government work not the party of government is the problem, which is, you know, sort of the Republican position. And yet, um, when it comes to these issues of education and healthcare, you know, the Democrats are as bad, sometimes worse on a lot of these issues, because they have these deep donor network or patronage network connections with the universities, the healthcare monopolies, and things like this. And for me, um, this is really the big cleavage where I think young people can have a massive political impact, which is to start running for office against these incumbents, to run on this sort of anti-monopoly platform, both in the higher education system, in the healthcare system, in all of these places where government is supposed to work, where everyone agrees that government needs to have a role. Um, and the question is essentially, why isn't it executing well? Um, you know, I'm not super familiar with British politics, but my understanding is that, you know, th this is sort of the cleavage that exists there too, with things like the NHS, with the universities, where you know there's sort of um, even the left has 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 sort of abdicated its historical role in in making these things work. And you know, in the United States, maybe we'd blame someone like Clinton. Maybe in the UK, you'd blame someone like Blair. But um, you know, it's it's a very similar shift I think that's happened in both countries, where um, the politics has gotten so 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 dysfunctional. And exactly to your point, sort of about, you know, what is the role that young people are going to play? I think this is the role they're going to play. I think these are going to be the campaigns that really reshape the country. And it's going to be around specifically these issues, healthcare and education. And I think you're exactly hitting the nail on the head when you say these are the core functions of government, um, because they are. And these are the most important things. These are the things that determine everything else, essentially. You know, is your population healthy? Can they work? Can they contribute to society? And two, how um, how skilled are they? How educated are they? Um, can they actually actualize you know their dreams and ambitions? And these are the core functions of the government that have gone so so wrong in so many Western countries. It's to me, you know, one of the most disappointing things that I've learned in writing this book is is how responsible the, the left and the Democratic Party has been in this decline. Yeah, I agree. It's one of those. In the UK, we have a slightly different political system, but in broad strokes, it works the same. Uh, for 99.9% .9 of the time, you've got the uh, the Labour Party, who are very, very similar to the Democrats, and you've got the Conservative Party, who are very, very similar to the Republicans. There is, there's a few smaller uh, parties as well. The Liberal Democrats, they would, in theory, be closer to the Democrats, um, which they kind of are, but they've not one in many, many decades, and they completely screwed over our, gen our generation. So they've lost it for a while too. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. But one thing that I found that's really... Okay, so when I was in college and things, so college uh, sort of to university age, so when I was in my sort of mid to late teens, I started becoming a bit more invested in the idea of politics and stuff. I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get my own money, especially when I finished college and I started working and things. I was like, okay, I can make my own money, you know, um, these kind of things are starting to intrigue me. I kind of understand vaguely some of these things these people on TV are talking about. 
So I started delving in and getting more and more interested. And then over time, I it just got beat out of me. I was just so everywhere I'd look, whether it's left or right or middle or whatever, it was always these things. It was, it was always... The, pol- the general rule of thumb for basically all of the public in the West, especially in the US and the UK, is just that all politicians are liars, and that's just okay, and that's just accepted. And I'm just like, what is happening here that the people who are leading our country, we just all know they're liars and everyone's just complacent about it? And I think that our generation, you know, and people like yourself and people even younger than us, they are really starting with the ones who've especially grown up with the internet already existing. You know, I remember, I mean, I'm not quite 30 yet. So I'm, I remember just before, you know, the internet was a thing, dial up connection a little bit, those kind of things. And I think that the generation that have grown up with internet and with that accessibility to all that information, just like that, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very, yeah, I'm, I'm very positive. I think in a lot of ways, I'm optimistic about hoping that with real action, people can actually go ahead with this. And you've not only written a book, you've been active in protests as well, which I'm, you know, I tip my hat off to you, sir, because it's incredible that you are not only speaking these things, but you're putting them into practice. So do you have, obviously, I'm sure you'll have other things to add to what I'm just about to ask, but do you have a, are you optimistic about the future? Do you think that your or our generation and younger can really push forward and get that, you know, get what we need done? Or do you think it's going to take many many generations to go and we're going to be old and retired until we see that day i'm interested by your uh, perception on that because you're so educated in this manner yeah you know I, this is something i spend a lot of time thinking about which is essentially um okay a, a lot of the traditionally really powerful roles have been foreclosed by earlier generations and they have very adverse agendas to young people generally um and you know the ambition of the country um more broadly and so uh what how do you work around these things? And some of the things I've done is I've come on podcasts with people like you. I've published this book. Um, I'm, I'm trying to talk about these places in non-traditional forums. But, but the second thing that I've done is, is exactly what, what you said, which is, you know, sort of organize protests, get connected with other students, speak on campuses, including my own, organize people and start to mobilize them. And to me, it's that second aspect where I think I feel the most optimistic because people get it. You know, it, 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 it's, it's these, these like really dysfunctional systems are so in your face that like people are looking for answers. It's just, we don't have a political discourse that offers anything really, um, apart from blaming the other side. And, and there's, you know, if, if you study markets, there's an interesting thing where apart from monopoly, you also have a lot of these markets with duopolies, you know, and sort of, uh, a paradigmatic example in the United States is like, Hershey and Mars, um, you know, these two candy bar companies. And what you see in duopolies a lot of the time is, is they settle into this sort of, um, you know, uh, almost parasitic, uh, coordination where it's not explicit. It's sort of implicit, but they're basically, you know, sort of colluding in the, in, in sort of reciprocal manners. And over time, they, they come up with, you know, sort of, um, some sort of equilibrium that's not good for society, but is good for the, the two of the companies. Because, you know, over time, they recognize that competition doesn't really serve anyone. And you sort of see this in the rideshare market with like Uber and Lyft, where over time, you know, they've started raising prices uh, together. Um, whereas, you know, in an earlier generation, they were always trying to undercut each other. And you sort of see this like gentle dance um, towards this duopoly monopoly structure. And this is exactly what's happening, at least in the United States, where we have essentially two parties. And um, it is so easy 
for them to to just basically settle into this duopoly dance where um, one side attacks for this, other side attacks for that. They make a lot of noise. The general consensus on what's actually going to happen is shockingly uniparty. Um, you know, the elites in both sides basically know exactly what the deal is going to be, what it's going to look like. You're sort of seeing it right now with uh, President Biden and and this uh, debt ceiling deal. Um, and it's the it's you know it's a very similar deal. It's a, the same deal that's been cut so many times in the past, where you know the elites on both sides in the institutional roles more or less agree on what the uniparty agenda is. They oftentimes have the exact same set of donors or very similar sets of interests that are funding both sides. And so you end up with this this delicate dance where in public, they'll say a lot of things that are quite critical of each other. In private, there's there's a shocking amount of consensus. And I think, you know, these are the places where young people ought to try and make a break. And so you know, in terms of figuring out what the uniparty consensus is, I think on education, we see it quite explicitly, quite clearly, which is even the Democratic Party is for the elite schools, is for shielding them from antitrust liability, from tax liability, from any sort of public obligation. Um, and so, you know, and, and certainly the Republicans haven't done too much either on, on holding them accountable. Uh, although they you know they make a little bit of noise but you know when it comes down to it um they've gone to the same schools too a lot of them um a lot of their kids go to the exact same schools and so you you can really see clearly what the uniparty agenda is on this um i think for young people you want to run against something run against the ivy league run against the elite colleges run against their tax exemptions their antitrust exemptions run against you know the the price gouging the extortion and all of these other practices that they do Run against the hospitals, run against the hospital monopolies, the private equity shops that monopolize these sectors, run against the pharma monopolies, you know, um, that basically buy out all competition. These are very, to me, explicit targets that are shielded by the uniparty. But if you're a challenger, you can sort of um, really, I think, get a lot of traction. People know intuitively that this, there's something wrong with this system and they're looking for answers. It's not going to come from the uniparty. It has to come from without. And I think those are the places where young people are going to be the most successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that kind of aversion to the mainstream. It's, it's you know, newspapers, I think, are quite a big indication of that, where a lot of our parents or the parents' parents' generation, they were like, they read the newspaper and whatever newspaper aligns with their agenda, they just follow everything it says. And it's like, a lot of us, you know, yeah, we came into it and be like, you know, these two newspapers say completely opposite things about the same event. Doesn't that doesn't that raise any questions? Don't you think there may be some degree of bias? No. Okay, don't worry about it. Um, so it, it's it's as you say. And when you th said about the um, duopoly and things, I the first thing I thought of was uh, Coca Cola and Pepsi. Right. Um, although Coca Cola probably a bit <laughs> higher than Pepsi. Um, but then I also thought about smartphones. And one thing I've often said is smartphones i've got one you know you have to live you know life i've got an android <laughs> yeah, right, right. i had an apple i had an iphone rather i've got an android but yeah it's, it, you can't just i can't live off the grid unfortunately especially not with the podcast but like i found with android and iphone whenever there's a new upgrade coming out and no no shade to anyone who gets the new iphone as soon as it comes out or whatever I've, you know people live their life and spend their money how they please but i'm always like i feel like it's a con because they're both agreeing each camera and each battery seems to always match. It's like, oh, the iPhone, oh, we've got this new camera that's, you know, this 100 megapixel. And then the next week, Samsung go, oh, we've actually got one that's 101 megapixel. And then, and it, they do it with batteries and screen resolution, when in reality, their technology is probably a decade ahead of what we're given. But because of they're both there being like, we both control the market, why would I give you a battery that I could put out, 
you know, in five years' time, if I can give you slightly better batteries in tiny increments, and we can both do it, and we can both charge $100 plus extra each time we bump up, as opposed to just jumping to the top. You know, so I, I really understand where you're coming from with that, and there's, there's so many examples of that in in the world, really, where the... the so can, I, can I just say something ahead, please, about, please. Uh, about Android Apple? So I think you, um, I, I wish I'd come up with that, but because I think you're exactly right on that. Um, you know, one of the cases I read recently was, um, I don't know if you play Fortnite or, or you play video games, but yeah. um, Epic Games essentially filed simultaneously two lawsuits, one against Apple, one against Android, that was basically the exact same. And, and their complaint was that both Apple and Android take 30% off the top of any of these transactions that happen on mobile devices. And so if you play Fortnite on either Apple or Android, they'll take 30% cut. And what Epic Games was saying was, well, they're not creating 30% of the value. Why are they charging so much? If you look at sort of other payments processing, um, you know, even Visa MasterCard, which is sort of another one of these duopolies, it's much, much lower. It's close to 2%. And here they are taking 30%. And so they filed these lawsuits and, you know, the, the judge sort of went, look one way and the other judge looked the other. And they said, you know, there is competition because the other person's competing. So Apple's competing with Android, Android's competing with Apple. And so they didn't do anything. And, and I think you're exactly right in all these aspects, you know, whether it's the 30% surcharge or, you're, you know, you're talking about some of the features, you know, the cameras, the batteries and all these things. There is so much implicit collusion in these types of duopoly markets that it, it is. I mean, and it's sort of like, I think, you know, you see it in your day to day life. But when someone says it out loud, you finally, you know, it's so easy to grasp because it's something you feel like you've always known. Um, I think Apple Android is a really good example of that. Mm, yeah, it's 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 just mental. And the more I find I look into it, the more upset I get about everything. Because I'm just like, every look, yeah, I've got I've got family members who like won't drink Coca Cola because they looked into it and Coca Cola are evil. And I'm like, if you look at any company that are that big, you're gonna find something that's evil. You know, Nestle cutting down tree for uh, the forests and uh, killing orangutans with palm oil, and then you've got you know Coca Cola poisoning the water supply of a lot of people in um, Asia and stuff. And that's just the surface level stuff we know about, you know, delving all the way into some of these corporations, what they do is scary. So just try and kind of put the blinkers on to a degree. But with people like yourself, you know, you're really pushing that and you're saying to people, you're already aware of these things. You know, all of us are walking around like horses with the blinders on, you know, we can clearly see it, but we're just trying not to because we're trying to live our own life and because of cost of living crisis that's affecting basically everyone. And it's like on the educational issues that are happening and the political discourse that's happening. There's so many of these things which... A lot of them are probably uh, distractions or the bits we're allowed to hear right. are somewhat distractions. But putting that uh, vaguely conspiratorial but quite realistic view of the world to one side, it's it's one of those things where when there's people like yourself who are writing these books, who are doing these protests, who are going on podcasts to talk to people about these, you're making it so that people can't look away. And I really appreciate that because these things are so important and it's so easy to just forget or brush it under the carpet and worry because – you know, as much as I appreciate what my parents did for me, a lot of their generation was the, especially with climate change, was the thing of, let's not worry about that now. We don't have to worry about that for decades, so let's just push it under the rug. And that kind of mentality, unfortunately, is something which is infecting a lot of people. So I want to throw that idea with you. I know we're uh, getting near the end of the time, but I want to throw that idea with you and then wrapping in with sort of your uh, that thing is... How did you go about writing this book? Because obviously with a fiction, it's quite easy. You write a, you have a story, you've got a character, follow the pen. But when it's non-fiction and it's analytical and you've got all this information, like how did you go about doing that, especially while also being in education? Yeah, so um, you know, in terms of writing the book, it, it was 
it was really interesting because I think a sequence of things happened in my life, which in hindsight, um, you know, sort of made it almost inevitable that I would write this book, but I didn't know it at the time. And so when I was in, in high school, there was this massive admission scandal that happened in my high school where um, there was a girl who's uh, a bit older than me who had said that she'd gone to both Harvard and Stanford and she was of South Korean heritage. And um, for whatever reason, this really got picked up in the South Korean press as like a human interest story. It's like, um, and so she got dubbed as, quote, the genius girl in the South Korean press. And for weeks at a time, there was a bunch of South Korean press at our high school interviewing a bunch of us, asking if we knew this genius girl. Um, and then this like hothouse media environment, um, I think either the girl or her family made these claims that Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the founder of Facebook, called her um, and told her to choose Harvard instead of Stanford. Um, and, you know, it, that I think... Honestly, that was probably the inflection point when people really got skeptical about this girl's story because, um, you know, it wasn't to begin with. It was it was quite unlikely some of the things that she was saying um, that Harvard and Stanford come up with this uh, unique system just for her where she could go to both schools for two years each. But I think, you know, some people are like, maybe, you know, who knows? But but when this like Mark Zuckerberg story came out, um, a lot of people at her high school started saying, well, this definitely isn't true. This is clearly made up. And so, um, you know, this girl or her family then. Uh, hacked a, or impersonated a Harvard math professor and sent an email out to the whole high school saying, um, you guys need to stop spreading rumors, things like this. We know better than you. We are Harvard. <laughs> and um, that was the moment where everyone was like, oh, this is definitely fake. And there's going to be something that's pretty big that's going to go down. And I remember this had a massive impact psychologically at my high school where, um, you know, already there was a lot of pressure about who's going where, getting into the most prestigious schools. And, you know, the traditional rat race mentality of, of American high schools of, of getting into these elite colleges. But when this happened, we realized that, wow, this, this is like deeply toxic psychologically. This is something that's really affecting people so much. So they'd rather lie than, than admit that they didn't get in somewhere. And, um, you know, um, for me, that was like a really vivid example of how toxic the psychology of some of the scarcity of seats had become. And then when I went to Georgetown a couple of years later, um, there was a girl in my grade whose parents got caught in the varsity blues scandal. And, you know, for those who don't know, this is when, um, a bunch of wealthy people, including Olivia Jade's parents, uh, were bribing, um, be an admissions consultant named William Rick Singer. They were bribing a bunch of athletic coaches at elite colleges like Georgetown and USC, um, to essentially, uh, you know, have their kids pretend to be athletes and get in through this admissions back door. And uh, I remember when that happened, you know, there was a really weird reaction on Georgetown's campus, which is no one was shocked that someone would try to use money to get into the school. Instead, you know, the, the, the real shame that was felt on campus was that this girl's parents had been too cheap to just pay the outright donation the legal way um, that so many others had paid. And I always thought this is such a weird thing that's going on. This is what people have sort of internalized on this campus when if you look at the outside reporting, it's all about how the game is rigged for the rich. And I think it just sort of confirmed that for me, that this really is true with the outside narrative um, is sort of espousing. And then finally, when I was uh, thinking about applying to law school and studying law, there was a, a tuition strike that was happening at Columbia where essentially, you know, seven students, really dynamic, energetic students had organized a tuition strike of almost 1,100 people who all said, we won't pay tuition unless you raise financial aid by 
Now, if you understand Colombia's budget situation, their massive endowment, you know, how they sort of throw money around for, for very silly um, things, you would understand that that 10% increase is essentially nothing. I mean, it, it, it was so within the realm of possibility. And yet it never happened. Colombia did not even budge an inch, even though, you know, a sixth to a third of their class was, was part of this tuition strike. And the question I started to ask is, well, why? Why isn't the school feeling any pressure from so many students who are all collectively mobilizing and acting um, against these sort of extortionate uh, tuition uh, requests? And so um, that's when I started to do more research and started to speak to some of the people involved with this protest and start to understand, well, what's going on on these campuses, demographically what's gone on, that at Georgetown, everyone's sort of you know, a spoiled brat. And what's gone on um, at the schools that you have so much scarcity of seats that people in high school, not just this girl in mind, but all across the country are lying about going or going to campus and impersonating to be someone else and doing all these crazy things that periodically show up in the news. And as I got deeper and deeper into this, I realized this isn't a bunch of individual stories. This is actually a market structure story. This is a story about scarcity, about a cartel that squeezes students and colludes amongst itself. And then I got deeper and deeper into what those mechanisms of coordination and collusion are, whether it's um, trustees who are interlocking trustees who serve on multiple boards of similar competing schools, or whether it's using the U.S. News and World Report, the de facto regulator of um, and ranking system in the United States, to uh, create a, a criteria that forces everyone or incentivizes everyone to squeeze as much rejectivity out of the admissions process as possible and to reject as many people as possible while spending as much as possible and increasing a, ma a massive amount of wasteful expenditure. And so as I tracked all these different collusive channels, I realized that what we have here is this sort of dragon's den of a bunch of colleges that on paper are charities, but in actuality are engaged in the worst forms of monopolization and cartel tactics in order to juice their prestige, squeeze students, and, and just maximize revenue so that they can spend more money. And, you know, that's what, what really, um, you know, drove this sort of more activist streak within me. Um, because when I figured that out, I realized, you know, this is a story that essentially no one has covered for a very long time to my great dismay. And so, um, I, I, you know, I rushed this book, um, out onto Amazon. It's available on Kindle now and I've been going on podcasts like this and speaking to students all over the country, trying to get them mobilized around these issues. So thank you so much for having me. It's It's been an absolute pleasure, Mike. No worries at all. I know you have to go, so I'll put all the links and stuff into the description and things. And I just want to say thank you for being such a such an activist, really, for putting so much of your education to good use, to trying to help other people and just trying to be a, a force for change. It's something I think a lot of people can learn from, not just in the educational sector, but across the world. So thank you so much just for being you, being inspiring. And I look forward to seeing where this goes. And I have the best of luck and the most positivity about your book and the future of the education system. So just thank you so much for your time. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope we stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. No worries at all. Have a great evening. I'll speak to you soon, no doubt. All right. Bye-bye. And that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, my friends, as I said in the intro, make sure to check out the show notes, find Sahaj's website, find his book. And also I've put the article to the varsity admission scandal in the show notes as well. If you want more information on that, if you weren't already aware. 
But what else have I got going on? Well, this episode is episode 199 of Genuine Chit Chat, so we are fast approaching episode 200, and it's relatively close to my 300th release as well. So I believe that next week I'm actually going to be releasing my episode on Star Wars Rebels Reviewed with Math and Dave. That'll be tackling series two of Star Wars Rebels. So I'll be posting that here, as well as on Genuine Chit Chat's YouTube channel, as well as on the feed of Comics in Motion. That'll kind of be just like a placeholder episode. And then the week after that is going to be my 200th episode. So I think what I'm going to do for my 200th episode is do another Q&A. So on social media, I will be putting out requests for people to send me questions and things. And you can be featured in the episode. I'll read out your Twitter handle, Instagram handle, or whatever you want me to read. I will read it out for you as well as your question. And that should be in about two weeks time. But you can start contacting me on social media at Genuine Chit Chat, or you can email me or send me other information in really any way that you prefer. Just send it my way and I can include your question on the show. But yeah, next week's going to be Rebels Review the week after that will be episode 200 then for episode 201 i've got a recording that i recorded in person with my friend jenna it's myself jenna and megan and jenna is a cancer survivor so she talks to us about her whole journey through cancer how video gaming has helped her and all kinds of things like that it's a really wholesome conversation it's really really important i find and it's the kind of conversation that i really created genuine chit chat for so i'm very very excited to release that conversation on top of that, I've got a recording due next week with Spider-Dan of Spider-Dan The Secret Boars. That's going to be talking about one of the weirdest movies we've ever seen ever, so that's going to be quite fun. Then I've also got a recording due for Comics on Trial, so myself, Scott Weatherly, and Tony Farina are all going to be talking about Indiana Jones' Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Scott is going to be prosecuting, Tony's going to be defending, and I'm going to be the judge, so we will crack down to find out if that film is as bad as everyone remembers it, or if it's kind of in line with some of the other Indiana Jones films. On top of that, obviously, I've got my standard episodes of Star Wars Comics and Canon that are coming out. That's great fun there. Make sure you go back and listen to some of the other conversations I've had. If you want to delve into the back catalogue, if this is your first time listening, then YouTube's probably the best place to do it because all of my conversations are in playlists. So if you just want to hear everything about business or everything about relationships or everything about science, those sorts of things, you can find all that information on YouTube. But obviously, you can just contact me and say, hey, Mike, I want to hear every conversation you've had about movies, and then I can tell you those things. But there is also a playlist for that on YouTube as well. Aside from that, my friends, obviously you can support me on Patreon or on Coffee. That's ko-fi.com. Both of them are the websites.com slash genuine chit chat. On Coffee, you can donate a one-off payment, whereas Patreon, you can become a monthly subscriber. If you become a monthly subscriber on Patreon, even for £1 a month, you'll get immediate access to every single episode of Afterthoughts. That's all 170 of them. So if you can listen to all of those in one month, you could then, in theory, stop being a Patreon supporter. Whereas on Coffee, if you wanted to donate a small amount of money, I will then send you a few episodes of Afterthoughts as well. And if you put an note in there as which ones you want i can send them your way they can be the star wars legends book reviews they can be all the mcu movie reviews they can be all the trips me and megan have been on anything like that but yeah any support in that way is incredibly appreciated if you can't support the show financially there's a bunch of other ways you can do so you can leave a rating on spotify you can leave reviews on apple podcasts or good pods or audible you can share with your friends on social media you can just tell people about it as well loads of great ways to support the show obviously listening is the number one way to do so and you are doing that right now so i hugely appreciate it but if you want to go just that extra mile rate review share and if you feel like it's worth it contribute financially but that's gonna be enough for me my friends thank you so much for tuning in as always i'll talk to you next week with star wars rebels reviewed and then the week after that for episode 200 so start getting your questions together for that pay attention to me on social media obviously you can sign up to the pop culture collective which is pccnewsletter.com where you get up-to-date things with everything that i'm up to as well as other incredible creators including many of the members of comics in motion but please reach out to me with your questions for the q a episode and we'll make it a good one but friends thank you so much again and i'll talk to you next week you have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.